Let me invite you to turn to the last chapter in your Bible, Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. Think back to the Garden of Eden with me. What was the ultimate goal of man? I would say that the ultimate goal of man at that time and and woman was to honor God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, how were they supposed to go about doing that? How were they supposed to glorify God while they were in the garden? Well, they were supposed to live in service to God. They were supposed to to depend upon God and on His resources and rule over the world that He had given to their care. But, at some point, they sinned. And instead of doing their work by depending upon God, they chose independence. They chose they didn't want to have God as their ruler. They didn't want to follow His rules. They wanted to be their own master. And as a result, all of creation was plunged into sin and all the consequences that come with it. Struggle, disease, illness, uh, pain, and death. But you see, God designed the world and, and He designed that it would not be destroyed until He provided a remedy for that sin. And that disease. We just got finished singing a song that talks about all of creation, both flower and and uh, and tree. They proclaim that Jesus is coming again. Well, how do they do that? They don't really speak. They don't say words. The idea there is comes from Romans chapter eight, where it says that all of creation, not just humans, all of creation groans as in the pains of childbirth. That is, as a result of sin. There has been significant consequences with what the Scriptures call a curse that have come on humans and on the rest of creation. And so in that sense, they groan. That is, the trees and the plants and, and the animals even groan for the day when this will no longer be the case. And Christ has come to provide that remedy. He is the one... Who, who God has allowed to come into the world to die in place of our sin as a, as a payment for our sin and so that He could reverse this curse that has been put on the world as a result of sin. And although His death guaranteed the reversal of that curse and His death has already taken place, that final action of God reversing the curse has not occurred yet. See, Christ's death guaranteed it, but it hasn't finally and fully happened. But here in Revelation chapter 22, it has. In Revelation 22, we come to the new heaven and the new earth, God's people existing with Him, with the triune God in the new Jerusalem forever. And John here is able to see a vision of what is going to be like when the sin, the curse that comes from sin has been reversed. The focus of our attention this morning will be on the first nine verses. So let me begin reading with Revelation chapter 22 and verse 1. This is the Word of God. Then He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. 
On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign forever and ever. And He said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent His angel to show His bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is He who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. The new universe, the new Jerusalem, the city that we looked at last week, this incredible place that God has designed for His people will be a place, as we'll see in this passage, it will be a place of rest and service and worship. That is, for all of eternity, as believers, we will be able to rest. To serve, we will be able to rest with God, serve God, and worship God. And we see those drawn out in this passage. I'll show you where I see them, and then I'll draw in some other passages from other parts of the Scripture to, to, to prove this. All right, first, a place of rest. That the the New Jerusalem will be a place of rest. Verses one through three. The angel comes to John and he shows that's who the he is there at the beginning of verse 22. This angel that had been showing John these visions now takes John to the New Jerusalem, the home of God, the home of His church. And, and what you're going to see in these first three verses is that most of these images point us back to the Garden of Eden. And that's why I call this a place of rest. The Garden was a place of rest as the new Jerusalem will be. Notice the first image in the second part of the verse there. Then he showed me a river of the water of life. If you remember back to Genesis chapter 2, in the Garden of Eden there was also a river. And this river was uh, flowing out of Eden and it actually watered the garden within, uh, within Eden. It was designed to provide an ongoing life source for the plants and and uh, and the creation that was there. Now this river in the New Jerusalem also comes out. It's called the the river of the water of life. So that tells us a little bit about what this river is going to be. And so I take this to be both a literal river that we're actually going to be able to see a river, perhaps walk in it, whatever. Uh, but also it's symbolic. It's both literal and symbolic. Now how can that be? How can we have something that's both literal and symbolic? Well, um, many of you are wearing a wedding ring right now, and I hope you would admit that it's a literal wedding ring, that you can actually touch it and see it and feel it and, and recognize its texture. But you also recognize that that wedding ring is not just literal, but it's also what? Symbolic of what? 
of an endless love that you are to have with your spouse, right? That's what often uh, preachers do when they when they perform the wedding ceremony. They say that this ring is made of of whatever material meant for its purity and also it's it's an unending circle, right? So it's both literal, it's actually on your finger and it's symbolic of something, of something uh, a special relationship that you have with your so I, I would argue that we do that sort of thing all the time, have something both literal and symbolic, and I think that's the case here with this river of the water of life. It's a literal river, but it's also symbolic of the life that we as believers will enjoy with God. That is this unending, eternal, endless joy, this endless joy, uh, joyful life that we will have with God. Notice the purity of this water this is the river of the water of life, clear as crystal. It gives you an idea of what it looks like. And notice the source, that it is coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It's coming from the throne of God and the Lamb. Remember I said that now in the New Jerusalem, we don't have two separate thrones. Okay, In the kingdom, during the 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ, we really have two separate thrones. We have Jesus' throne. He's sitting on the throne of David in the 1,000-year reign, on the earth. And then you have God sitting on His throne as He has been for all of eternity. Okay, So you have two separate thrones. But in the New Jerusalem, which follows the kingdom, the 1,000-year reign of Christ, you have one throne. That is, the triune God sits on one throne that, that now God's purposes and Christ's purposes have come together. Not that they were ever separate, but, but now... Christ is no longer on a separate throne. He is now on a throne with God. And so that's what you see here. That it's coming from the central throne of God and the Lamb. And, uh, and so uh, notice the location of this river in the first part of verse 2. It's in the middle of the street. So this makes this river the central feature of the New Jerusalem. That is, uh, apart from the throne, obviously, but the throne now provides or, or leads into this river that provides the, the, the life-giving nature of, of, uh, of the existence there. The central feature of the throne of God, and then you have this water of life that's throwing, flowing from it. Notice the second image that John sees right after that in verse 2. On either side of the river was the tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit. The tree of life. Now, again, this should point us back to what? The Garden of Eden. Remember, there was a tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And when man and Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? They no longer could have access to that tree of life, could they? They were removed from the garden. They could not have this eternal life that comes from this tree. They were banned from it because of sin. You see, now in the New Jerusalem, there will be nothing that bans us that keeps us from taking of the fruit of this tree of life, from drinking from this water of life. Nothing can ban us because sin has been done away with. Christ has already defeated the last enemy, which is sin and death. And so this tree of life is now available for all who will be a part of the new Jerusalem. And notice on it has 12 kinds of fruit. There is variety in this uh, life-giving source that God has. Uh, verse 2 says, "...and bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." 
apparently this fruit is to eat. And again, I'm suggesting that it's both literal fruit that we will eat and also symbolic of the ongoing life that we have in God. Not that we actually have to eat anything in order to, to continue. That may be the case, but, but likely it's, it's just a memorial or a symbolic picture of our life, of our eternal life in God. Notice at the end of verse 2 that it's leaves. The leaves of this tree of life provide healing for the nations. Now, what I didn't mention there, if you notice, that, that the on either side of the river was the tree of life. I, what I didn't mention was that this is probably referring to trees of life. That is, if it's on either side of the river, then there are probably multiple trees lining the river. And, and all of them are known as, as the tree of life. Okay, but, but what I want to point your attention to now is at the end of verse 2 that these leaves will provide healing for the nations. Now, why would we need healing? I thought we already saw in chapter 21 that there will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. There will be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. Then why do we need healing? Why do we have to take of its leaves and, and, and uh, extract from it the healing that comes from it? Well, I don't think it's healing in that, in that sense. Uh, in fact, the Greek word that's used here is more the idea of therapeutic. Okay, that is, it's, it's there to enhance the quality of life. That when we take of these leaves, when we use these leaves, it makes life there even more fully satisfying, if that's comprehensible. It appears that these leaves, uh, again, are symbolic of what has already taken place. That is, we take the Lord's Supper and each time we take the bread and the, the cup, we're not re-crucifying Christ every time as other uh, doctrines teach or other um, religions teach. Okay, We're not re-crucifying Christ. Why are we taking the Lord's Supper? It's as a memorial, right? Of what has already taken place one time. And so this the leaves the heal, that provides healing for the nation is probably similar to that, a memorial, a remembrance. Perhaps we will even uh, we will be doing this in remembrance of Christ. We'll be taking this, these leaves and using them to remind us of the healing that has already taken place. Do you see? All right, so there's, again, we don't have a need to, to be healed as if there's going to be some sort of infliction that has to be healed. It's there to remind us about what God has done. Then verse 3, we see that there is no more curse. There's no longer any curse. Now, this is significant. There's no longer any curse. I don't want you to miss this. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. We've been alluding to Genesis. I've been alluding to Genesis here, the Garden of Eden. Now, I want to show you the curse that has come on the universe as a result of our sin, as a result of Adam's sin. <clears throat> Chapter 3, this is just after both Eve and Adam sinned. Chapter 3, verse 16, God responds to them. First, He curses the serpent in verses 14 and 15, but we're going to begin in verse 16. To the woman... God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. 
the idea of conflict. There's going to be conflict between you and your husband. Verse 17, Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Okay, so at the end of that, we see the curse on Adam is what? Death, right? You will return to the dust. But in addition to death that results from sin, and that is true, there's also going to be difficulty in work. That that there will be thorns and thistles that as you seek to produce crops and as you seek to tend your garden, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be difficulty, hardship as a result of sin. And again, Romans 8 talks about all of creation groaning like with the pains in childbirth for that day when when creation will be renewed. And so when we get to this new universe, all of those things you see there, all of those curses that come upon mankind will be no more. There will be no more difficulty in work. It will be a joy. There will be no more struggle. There will be no more death. So turn back to Revelation 22. How does this sound so far? A place with the river of water of life, the tree of life, with its fruit that yields a variety of different fruits in each different month. And then you have... Uh, the, the leaves that, that are provided to remind us of the healing that comes to the nations and all the curse will be gone. Does it sound like a place of struggle? Does it sound like a place of stress and frustration? No, it's a place of rest. We will have reached our goal. We, have, we will have finished our course. We will have, we will have fought the fight and the war will be over. And it will be time to enjoy the spoils. It will be a place of rest. Secondly, we see that it's a place of service. Let me show you where I get this from. The end of verse 3 says that uh, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. Okay, so it will be a place of service. Look at the uh, verse 4. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. The idea there of His name being on their foreheads is the idea that, that God has ownership of us. That that He owns us. That He writes His name on us. Like a, a master would do to his slave. Or like the Antichrist will do to his servants. That God owns us. And the fact that He owns us suggests that we are going to serve Him as verse 3 says. That we are His bond servants and we will continue to serve Him throughout eternity. Now that may sound cruel to you that we would have to work in eternity. We see work often as a bad thing, but keep in mind that that Adam worked before sin came into the world and he enjoyed it. It was a good thing. And we know that work is a good thing also because our Father is always working. He's always working. He's always providentially working within the, the, the universe to accomplish His purposes. Our Father is always working. That's a good thing. He's not doing it because He's being coerced to do it. He is sustaining the world. He's, he's holding it all together with the word of His power. 
and we should take pleasure in work as well. Not just in eternity future, which we will, but but even now. And and at that time it will be much easier. The struggles that you have in work, the conflict that you currently have at your job or the the work that you do in your in your home will be done away with. It'll be much easier, much more enjoyable, it'll be pleasurable. You know the feeling you get when you set out to accomplish a project and you get it done. And you look back on it and enjoy the 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 uh, results of your labor. That's the type of type of feeling you're going to have in eternity. It's going to be a place of service. We're going to be serving God, doing His bidding, doing what He pleases. And notice in verse five, nothing will keep us from productivity. Verse five says, and there will no longer be any night. They will have not not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. There, uh, there are often constraints to the amount of work that we can do. Some of it has to do with the natural light that we have in our world. We have to produce artificial light. Sometimes uh, you, you see big projects going on outside or something. They say, listen, we can't do anything more. We have to, to, to wait for the sun to come back up. Or, or the rain's coming and, and we, we have to physically stop the job we're doing. There's not going to be anything that keeps us from productivity. No more three shifts or anything like that because we're not going to be fatigued. We're going to be able to work to our fullest. No need for a light of the lamp. Why? Because God is the light. God's glory shines. That the Lamb provides the lamp and God is the light. That He is even now the unapproachable light. You see, right now the sun and the moon have a purpose. And it is to provide light upon the earth. But there will be no need for those heavenly bodies when we get to the new Jerusalem. Why? Because the Lord God illumines the new heaven, the new earth with His glory. We get a clue as to what type of work we will do do at the end of verse 5. It says, because the Lord will illumine them, speaking of the light, and they will reign forever and ever. I've mentioned before that uh, particularly as church saints, we will have a special place in the eternal kingdom. That is that we will be, notice the words there, we will reign forever and ever. That, that we will have the job to be vice regents with Jesus Christ. That we will have a job to, to do some kind of ruling. Again, remember, there's still going to be some sort of, of, uh, of authority structure, of, of structure within the, the new heaven and the new earth where you have some nations that are going to be underneath our command. Okay, obviously, we're going to be in keeping with, with what Christ is doing. Not because they're lesser than us or they're not any, uh, you know, they were unimportant to God's plan, but but simply because there's uh, different purposes that God has set up, similar to the structure within the household. Just because the husband is over the wife, that the wife is supposed to submit to the husband, doesn't make the husband better than she, right? Any amens from the ladies? No? Okay. Uh, Same thing with regard to our government. Just because someone has been put in a place of government, uh, of leadership in a higher Authority than us, like a police officer or a government official, doesn't make them better than us. In God's sight, we're all 
equal, and I think that's the same sort of thing. Uh, Similar to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father has authority over God the Son, but that doesn't make God the Father better than the Son, right? There's, there's an equality there, and I think the same thing is going to be true here. We're going to be vice regents with Christ, ruling on thrones forever over the nations, over the Gentiles, the, the, the people, Old Testament saints, tribulation saints, I would, I would think. See, God has, a, a, has designed the world for humans to have some kind of a ruling function. You think back to the garden, and what was their, what were they supposed to do? Obviously, they weren't supposed to eat of the tree of knowledge from good and evil, but also they were supposed to rule over the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and, the, and the, uh, every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. You need to rule over them. Okay, so God had a design where I'm going to rule over you, you're going to rule over my creation. And here's the same sort of structure that's going to be set up in heaven, apparently. That is that God's going to rule over us and He's going to have us rule over His new creation to tend to the gardens and, and all the, the things that need to, to be done there. Okay, So it will be a place of rest, but it will also be a place of service, of work. And that'll be a good thing. We know further that this will take place because of Matthew 25. Jesus gives the parable of the stewards. And He gives each one of them uh, resources that they're supposed to invest and, and make better. When He comes back, obviously one of them doesn't do it. And so that one person goes into an eternal hell. But the person who does respond and, and, uh, and, uh, and ret- brings a return for the resources that God gave, what is... Christ save, say to them. He says to the two people, He says, uh, as a result of your faithfulness with what I have given you, you will, now be in faith, you will now be faithful in much. That is, you will now be entrusted with much. That, that somehow our capacity to serve God is dependent upon our, our service of Him now. Okay, so if you're serving little, you care little about God's future kingdom and God's current program, then you shouldn't expect to serve very much in the eternal kingdom. You need to be responsible for what the resources that God has given to you, that is the money, the abilities, the talents, the relationships that you have. Be responsible in those and see God allow you to do greater things in the life to come. Thirdly, it will be a place of worship place of rest, a place of service, and a place of worship. Notice verse 4, a phrase we skipped over. They will see His face. I said last week this has to do with us seeing the face of God the Father Himself. That we will be able to have eternal, unhindered fellowship. Remember the shape of the, the New Jerusalem? What was it? A cube. And that points us back to the Old Testament that shows us that that. The, the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, where God would come down. His special presence would reside. The priest would come once per year. Well, now He's going to live in that most holy place. And we will live with Him in this cube where God's presence will be unimpeded. We will never be taken away from His presence. We will see His face. That's the idea of fellowship. So we'll be able to fellowship with Him and worship this, I believe, 
is the climax of all the Bible. That we've been trying to, we've seen the conflict start to intensify with with the Jews actually killing the the Son of God, and then obviously Jesus raises from the dead a great moment, but it's not final. It, it it guarantees that it will be final, but it's not final. We have to wait until this new heaven, new earth, and finally, God had been saying, "I will be their God, and they will be my people." Revelation twenty two four. And they shall see His face. Before this, no man could ever see God's face and live. But God has designed it for us to live with Him forever and to worship Him. There will be some great historical, biblical figures in eternity that we will be able to talk with. There will be some powerful angels that we want to have a conversation with and ask them about how certain things went and how they can do all the things they can do. But, as John is going to find out here in verses 8 and 9, we can't worship them. Look at verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I did, when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. Okay, so John, again, is like that. I, I've given the example before of a messenger. Okay, you, you have a, a, a huge debt with the bank, and the bank decides to eliminate your debt, to, to dissolve your debt, just say it's gone. And instead of the bank coming to you directly, they send a representative they send that person to your house, and how do you respond? Automatically, you get down and say, thank you for relieving this huge debt of mine. And they say, you can't do that. Some people might accept it, but, but they're supposed to say, you can't do that. I'm not the one who relieved the debt. It was the guys at the bank. I'm simply a representative, and here's what the angel is saying. Okay? I am showing you great and powerful things, but don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. That's you and me. I'm a fellow servant of yours. I may look like a powerful creature to you because I'm showing you all these great and wonderful signs, but don't worship me. I'm not to be worshipped. Worship God and Him alone. See, eternity is meant for us to to worship God, to give ourselves to God, to, to acknowledge Him for who He is. And this again shows us that we should never worship anything, no matter how important or how great they seem, whether it's a, a political figure or our own children or a world leader or a rich person or a sports figure or even an angel or not to worship them. Because that sort of, of thinking, that sort of activity is idolatry. It's taking God off of His throne, moving Him out of the place, and putting someone else in His place. A created being. That's what He's saying. See, I'm a created being just like you. Worship the Creator. And so, in heaven, we have a place of worship. And every time we see, it seems, it seems like every time in Scripture when we get a glimpse of heaven, we always get a glimpse of people or 
God's creatures worshiping Him. Angels. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees the, the cherubim. These angels bowing down before God and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. In Revelation chapter 4, verse, chapters 4 and 5, you see the angels and all the hosts of heaven bowing down and, and praising God and worshiping Him and saying, Holy, holy, holy. So let me just make a point of application before we look at these last few verses. That we ought to improve our worship and praise to God now while we're on earth. Because we're going to be doing this forever. How do we do that? How do we improve our worship and praise now? Well, I would suggest the way that we do that is not by building up more feelings inside. We, we may be lacking feelings, and that could be a problem. But, but I would suggest that we make it more word-centered. Okay, That is, how does God want to be worshipped? He told us how He wants to be worshipped in His Word. So how does He want to be worshipped? Are we doing it? Are we doing it with hearts that are full of love for Him? Or are we, like Isaiah talked about, Israel, honoring Him with our lips while our hearts are far from Him? See, I don't want to disconnect us from our feelings for God. We do need to have feelings for God. But, but what I'm suggesting ultimately is that we need to make sure that our worship is centered on God's Word, that it, that it is doing what God has asked us to do in His Word. So that when we get to glory, when we get to the new Jerusalem, it won't be such a shock to our system to have to sit through a service. It won't be such a shock to our system to have to sing praises to a God that we've never sung to before. Or we've never sung with any energy before. You say, well, well, you don't understand. You know, when I get there, I'll have a much better singing voice. I wouldn't count on it. Okay? Uh, we are going to be very similar. Okay? The, the makeup of our bodies are going to be very similar. Now, perhaps God will make it so that we're no longer out of tune. But, but the fact is, is if we're not worshiping God with our mouths now in our singing, if we're not worshiping God with our minds now, while well, we're looking at the Word. Why should we expect to all of a sudden have some emotion build up within us to do it for all of eternity? Our worship now, our praise now, is preparation for eternal worship. Think of it that way. When you come to worship God, don't think of it as another, just another Sunday or i got to do my duty. That I'm... I'm coming to worship the Almighty God of the universe, the one who's coming to bring me to His home. Where He's designed a place for me to dwell with Him forever. And I'm going to improve in that. I'm going to make it like my job. I'm going to, to get the best that I can at worshiping God. Let me conclude with verses 6 and 7. Confirmation and an exhortation. There's a confirmation in verse 6. And he said to me, the angel, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. The temptation we have when we look at all these 
these things that are going on in the book of Revelation is to say, well, that can't be true. How could all those things be? We tend to be cynical, but John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, from the, this, he gets a word from the angel that says, these words, this book of Revelation, it's faithful and true because it comes from the one who is faithful and true. Jesus Christ. And therefore, all that is spoken will happen. Are you unsure about this eternity that's laid out for us? Are you unsure about this judgment that will come, chapters 4 through 19? Then you don't understand the one who gave this word to you. He is faithful and true, and it cannot, cannot fail. And so that, must, that means that we have to make sure that we make our, or have our thoughts come from what the truth that is in God's Word. That is, that our Word is the guidance behind what drives us. We have all this human reasoning that we've, we just automatically have seep into our minds from our society, and it tells us that can't be true. Here's what God's saying. These words are faithful and true. Allow that to drive your thinking, to reverse your cynicism. We may wish for a confirming experience to say, okay, well, this is God speaking. But, but here is the confirming truth. Here is the confirming proof. It is the Scriptures written down for you and preserved for you. And your job is simply to dig in. Get underneath the teaching of God's Word as often as you can. Find out what's pleasing to Him and submit to Him. These words are faithful and true. The end of verse 6, it says that the angel has shown his bondservants the things that must soon take place. This takes us back to chapter 1, verse 19, where we had an outline of the book. The things which, which are, are, the things which have been, the things which are, that is, the things which have been are where we are currently, chapters 2 and 3. The things which, uh, which are, uh, I'm sorry, the things which have been are ch- is chapter 1, where John actually saw the vision. Chapters 2 and 3 the things which are, and then the things which will soon take place, chapters 4 through 22. Okay, These are the things. He's pointing us back to that, that model. So what should our response be to this spectacular vision? And here's the answer in verse 7. This is Jesus speaking. If you have a red-letter edition Bible, you see that. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. The idea of quickly there means at any time. That's the idea of imminent. That he is, he will come. At, he can come at any time. There's nothing holding him back other than God's plan for when he will come back. He will say this again in verses 12 and 22. Continue to encourage us. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. Why does he do this? He's doing this to encourage us. He said this in chapter 3, verse 11, to the church at Philadelphia. He, did, he gave it to them as a promise. Okay, all the struggle that you're facing right now, let me, let me encourage you. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming. Okay? And then he gives it as a warning in chapter 2, verse 16, to the church at Pergamum. He said, you need to get things in order. You need to repent. Why? Because I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. Listen to this parable in Genesis, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 24. This is the idea of why he wants us to be ready. 
Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day the Lord is coming. Okay, I'm coming quickly. We don't know that day. Verse 43. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert. He would not have allowed his house to be broken into for this reason. You must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom His Master put in charge of His household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom His Master finds so doing when He comes. Truly I say that He will put him in charge of all His possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My Master is not coming for a long time, and he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he, in which he does not know and he will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This parable gives us both a promise, a hope of encouragement, and a warning. The master's coming. Let me tell you something, that if you're ready, that if you're found working for Christ when He returns, then He's going to put you in charge of all His possessions. But if you think, you know what? A lot of time, Master's not coming. I'm going to enjoy my life now. I'm going to enjoy the pleasures of life that God's told me not to. The Master will come on a day when you do not expect it, and He will give them a place with the hypocrites. In the eternal hell. So here's the promise here in Revelation chapter 22. I am coming quickly. What does that mean for you? It should be both a promise and a warning. It should be an encouragement and a warning to, to get your, your life in order. Don't wait. Notice this final word of encouragement in verse 7. Don't miss this. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Don't ignore what's in this book. This is giving for our blessing. This was the same blessing, the the promise of blessing that's given in chapter 1. Verse 3. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of these books. You get it again from Jesus Christ Himself. Blessed are you if you keep these words. That you hope, that you have anticipation for Jesus coming, that you live in light of that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ is coming? Do you believe that He will bless you if you continue to do what is right to follow Him? Or do you think, you know what, i got plenty of time. This passage is about eternal life. The water of life. The tree of life that flows out from the throne of God. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that you might have life and that you would have it more abundantly. That abundant life is for you. Look at chapter 22, verse 17. I'll show you how you can get it. The end of the verse says, Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. Come. Come to Christ. Don't wait until the next life. It will be too late. You need to come now. And that water of life that He promises, that abundant life that comes from the water that you will drink, can be enjoyed now. You don't have to wait for eternity. You can enjoy the abundant life now. They can't enjoy it in its fullest 
but you can enjoy it. That's what He said to the woman at the well. Come and drink of this. We're all thirsting for this water. Whether believer or unbeliever. We want to drink a water that satisfies. We want to be satisfied in our souls. And Jesus said this to the Samaritan woman in John 4, Whoever drinks of this water that I give will never thirst. We can't enjoy this abundant life fully now, but we can get a sense of eternal life by fellowshipping with our God now through Jesus Christ in the way that He's designed for us to do that. Through having a relationship with Him. So let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who who washes to take the water of life without cost. Father, we thank You for Your revelation to us. Thank You for showing us what the things that will soon take place. We anticipate Christ's return. We long for it. We groan with the rest of creation and, and are frustrated at times with the struggles that we have to face, the trials that seem to go on. We, we don't say that because we, we are being cynical of the way that You're treating things or just stating things as they are, as the psalmist often did, showing that we have great burdens that we bear as people who are living in a sinful world, a world that that is opposed to You. And we have sinful natures. We ourselves, even in our own hearts, are full of sin and need to constantly be turned back to Jesus Christ. And so we need You. We long for that day when we will be restored when our bodies will be made to do what they were designed to do, when our souls will be made perfect, be able to worship, fellowship with You, grow in our knowledge of You, serve You, and rest from the weary life that we live. Thank You for walking with us all the way, for leading us even into the valley of the shadow of death. Even during that time, we can fear no evil because You are with us. Go with us all the way. Keep pursuing us when we, go, when we go astray. When we think that there's something greater on the other side of the fence, following a false teacher, come after us. Bring us back to the fold. We need Your loving and tender care. Help us to hope and to have confidence in this future day when Jesus Christ will make all things new. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.